You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. I would imagine, and, and we'll be going through a series of events from everything from privacy to um, sharing economy to everything um, going forward. So um, does just to start off, um, I will introduce my panel in a second. Does anybody not know what happened yesterday? <laughs> Yeah, does anybody not know? I, this person knows over here. Um, yes, like so. In um, uh, apparently, in the magically, these llamas appeared in uh, the streets of Arizona and ran around just magically, and it was like the internet went nuts. Um, in the dress. Oh, and then there was a dress thing. Um, but before that, there was um, there was a. Uh, the FCC does open internet order, and I, presumably is to ensure that we can access videos about llamas uh, and have public debates about the color of a dress. So um, it, it, it is, it seeming as trivially, tri- trivial as those discussions, llamas and, and, and dresses, dress colors are, we certainly think that the, the goal for the Federal Communications Commission was to try to find a way to make sure that we can access those things and have those type of conversations, and a whole lot more. So um, yesterday the commission um, put out their uh, open Internet order, which sometimes we call net neutrality, and um, this is our fourth briefing on that topic in the last 13 months in this building. So I'm, I'm exhausted by talking about it. But um, yesterday's, I will say this, but since the last time we did this briefing, which was a matter of months ago, Things have changed um, uh, dramatically um, where we thought things were going um, the last time we were here. And, and what we wanted to do is just do a quick briefing um, to, to apprise people on what was go- what's going on, how it affects uh, businesses, how it affects consumers, um, how it affects uh, Congress and the work that you have to do. And I think um, the overwhelming interest of this issue uh, in the past couple of days kind of shows that you know, maybe five years ago we would do this briefing and you just have kind of committee staff be interested and things like that. Now the, the, the general interest in these issues, and, and, and frankly SOPA before it, um, shows that everybody er, has a stake in how the Internet evolves, and, and it's really more populous than it ever was before. So um, we appreciate you for coming. Um, let me just uh, start off. The FCC voted 3 to 2 um, to pass the open internet order, and we'll talk about that mainly. Um, we can also, in the question and answer part, get to the – they also did another order on a municipal broadband, um, which is, is separate, um, but related to the goal of promoting uh, open and, and free uh, and, and broadly accessible internet. So I will ask my – I'll introduce my panelists, and I'll ask them to kind of like just kind of go into the details about what happened yesterday, um, other than the llamas and the dress. And, and, and my, my, I'll probably start with um, Sarah Morris, um, who is with the Open Technology Institute at New America, and then probably uh, Jeff Manny, who's the, um, it, the International Center for Law and Economics. Um, we also have down the end to talk about kind of the economic aspect is uh, Anna Marie Kovacs, and she's been a finance, financial analyst for 30 years. Um, she's a visiting senior scholar at the Center for Business and Public Policy at Georgetown. So we're really happy to have her. And then also Melanie Wan, who's with the National Association of Realtors, and she does tech policy for them and um, for a different take on, on this particular issue. And then we'll go to Q&A, and then we'll, we'll have cocktails. So, Sarah, let me, let me just kind of start with you just, just briefly on kind of what happened yesterday, and maybe we can start with, um, you know, how the, the D.C. Circuit Court about 13 months ago kind of uh, came down on the FCC about a previous attempt they made to do this? Sure. So um, uh, lots of things happened yesterday. It was, uh, um, the, as you mentioned, there was the municipal broadband decision and also um, the, the open internet uh, declaratory ruling and order that, that the FCC voted on. Um, in that 
Um, second item, the commission, we, we obviously haven't seen the text yet, so I'm, you know, speaking off of the, just one of the quirks of FCC process. Which isn't unusual. We wouldn't have, there's no circumstances under which we would have an order today. Right. Um, based on their tradition. Unless the dissent's already, but yeah, no, they'd still have to, there's, there's a process mandated by the APA. That it would have been have. very unlikely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so coming out of the, the DC Circuit decision last year, a little over a year ago, um, the, that court largely vacated the commission's 2010 open internet rules, um, particularly as they relate to bans on discrimination, um, and blocking, um, preserving only the, the transparency portions of those rules. <clears throat> so then the commission initiated a proceeding in May, um, uh, for notice and comment on new rules to replace the rules that had been vacated by the DC circuit. Um, we can talk about the process and what happened there, but, um, Fast forwarding to, to yesterday, the commission voted on um, bright line rules that protect against throttling of content online, blocking content online, and deals for um, paid arrangements for the, the prioritized carriage of, of prioritized or enhanced carriage of traffic online. Um, the commission also implemented a general conduct rule, which, um, as they explained, is designed to um, protect against um, future harms that are not you know, fully developed or understood at this point, but that, which may arise. Um, the commission also, for the first time, extended those rules to, those rules I just mentioned, to, to mobile broadband. Um, and for the first time, the commission also, while not extending those rules to the inter interconnection context, um, uh, asserted jurisdiction over, over the interconnection point into the, what we call colloquially the, the last mile. And, um, and those, Complaints brought under the, about interconnection disputes would be analyzed on a case-by-case -case basis um, and subject to the um, standards of 201 and 202 in the Act, which uh, prevent um, unreasonable or unjust um, behaviors. So, so there's um, a couple of camps here, right? There are people that say that this is really just a uh, – the, this order by the FCC is a solution in search of a problem. Actually, one of the commissioners from the FCC said uh, Title II, which is the classification that the FCC put it in yesterday, um, is a, not just a solution in search of a problem, it's a government solution that creates a real-world problem. So there's that camp. Then there's a camp to say everybody kind of like agrees that we want to have an open and vibrant Internet. Um, we've had, you know, Chairman Powell from the FCC before had these kind of five, freedom, five freedoms or four freedoms, um, and we've been kind of operating under this kind of, you know, goal of uh, openness um, all along and things have been going well. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, so those are the few different camps. Is there a question, Jeff, if you can augment what um, Sarah said about, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you view this and where do people come down about is it, is it that this is a, is a bad thing for net neutrality or is it just the way they went about doing it? Yeah, so uh, uh, a little bit more background from, from what Sarah said. We'll, we'll flesh this out in order to answer your question. The, the, uh, the the important piece of background you have to understand is that while uh, for 15, sorry, for 10 years now, the FCC has been trying in various ways to uh, regulate some form of net neutrality, it's been scrambling to find the legal authority to do so. And uh, it's been rejected by the courts twice, uh, and uh, this is now the you know, sort of third attempt to try to find a legal basis in order to impose these rules that it says would protect the open Internet and ensure net neutrality. So this time, for the first time, 
the commission has decided that the way it needs to do that is by reclassifying uh, broadband Internet connections under Title II of the Act, the, the provision of the Act that regulates common carrier. Um, uh, previously, you know, before then, the FCC had actually decided affirmatively that such uh, services were considered information services and could and should be regulated under the uh, under Title I of, of the Act, which is far less regulatory. It doesn't impose the traditional common carriage kind of uh, requirements that you when you when you think of the old Ma Bell telephone monopoly. Those were the rules that were made to regulate that. This is something different, and it was meant to be kept different. Well, the courts have said uh, that that it, it looks to, to be pretty difficult to come up with the net neutrality rules, at least the specific rules that the FCC wants under Title One. So now, and this is sort of the big you know headline I think from yesterday is uh, that they've decided they're going to go to Title Two to do this. And to refresh our recollection, the Federal Communications Commission had said that these cable modem services, DSL services. Title one. Our title one, right. Yeah, right. This was, so this is, this, already, is a, this is an absolute change in, in I mean, they, they had affirmatively said they're Title I. Uh, uh, that, that actually even went up to the, that decision, even went up to the Supreme Court and was affirmed by the Supreme Court. Um, and now they're saying, well, uh, in effect, they're saying we can get into the legal requirements that they'll have to meet in order to do this. Conditions have changed, and we've decided that these need to be regulated under, uh, under Title II. And then but, Sarah had mentioned uh, wireless, and what title is that in? So, so wireless is traditionally uh, uh, regulated under Title III, wireless voice uh, service. This is actually the first time that wireless mobile services, so, uh, I'm sorry, wireless data services, the, basically, you know, your broadband Internet connection over your phone, uh, they will now be regulated under Title II uh, and and previously again like other broadband services uh they were previously regulated under a non common carriage uh provision so the same it's the same change for both of them the important thing though that I, the, and the reason i wanted to give all of this background and and highlight the point about title 2 which is which has been uh, as most of you probably know the the real crux of the debate over the last uh, uh, several months um, is, in response to your question, Tim, there's a huge difference between net neutrality and Title II. Right. So, so even if it is the case that we all agree that – so I, I will say that we, should, we all agree that we should have an open Internet. We don't necessarily all agree that we should have net neutrality rules in order to, to protect or preserve an open Internet. I, for example, believe that such rules are not necessary at all, not because I don't want an open Internet, but because I don't think they're necessary to ensure that we have an open Internet. So you're in the commissioner, you're in the yeah. commissioner pie camp, like it's a solution in search of a problem that creates a real world Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. But even more so, right, we have the question of even if you do – so forget, you know, my point of view on this. Even if you do think that we should have some sort of net neutrality rules, it's yet another and far more contentious question whether the the sort of, you know, my word, not necessarily, say, Chairman Wheeler's, draconian rules of, of Title II are the right ones that are necessary to ensure that we get those net neutrality rules. And okay. that's the big – uh, that's where we're fighting now, and that's why y yesterday's vote was, for some of us, so terribly problematic and, and for others not. Okay. So you had said that um, they put it in Title, title II, which is like this kind of common carriage uh, uh, regiment that doesn't really make sense for in broadband services. But didn't – and I'll go to Sarah. Didn't the, the commission say or, or the chairman say that, well, we're going to put it in Title II, but we're going to, like, do it light, the way we did with wireless wireless mobile services, where we kind of put it in Title III, and we're just going to, like, we're going to forbear. We're going to treat it. We're going to keep it hands off. And and arguably, um, wireless is done pretty well. My, I love my new phone, by the way. Um, and 
so Sarah, how, how would you, can you elaborate on what that means? And, and if you have a position on this issue, whether you think it was the solution search of problem, the right approach, the wrong approach, that'd be helpful. Sure. So I'll start by answering your first question first. So, um, now I've just lost track of what you're yeah, he said. The chairman said we're going to put it in Title II, oh, but we're going to, like, forbear. <laughs> forbear. So, yeah, the, this light-touch approach to Title II. Um, so this idea of a light-touch approach has been around for a while. It was, it was the third way um, that was sort of almost voted on in, in 2010, but, but went away at the last minute. It, was, it has applied in the context of mobile voice. Um, and what this means is that the, the commission in reclassifying um, – also uh, is what we call forbearing from a large number of provisions under Title II that they believe um, do not apply for whatever reason in the context of broadband internet. We think that this approach is the right one, that Title II provides bounded and clear legal authority for strong net neutrality rules that the commission was unable to, to reach. We, we don't believe the commission would have been able to reach under, say, Section 706, which was the, the legal authority they were considering earlier last year. And we can talk about that in a, uh, yeah. some other time. Yeah. Um, and, and that this provides the clearest opportunity for the commission to ground the strong net neutrality protections in, in clear legal authority and, and implement the best protections for, for consumers without, you know, regulatory overreach through the full application of Title II and, and any number of provisions in there. Okay. So I'll ask a totally loaded question. Um, light touch, right? So there's Title II. He's going to say Title II, Title II, but I'm going to have a light touch, and uh, which is called forbearance, I guess, uh, synonymous with forbearance. But it, it, that metaphor of the touch, it depends on who's doing the touching, right? Like you might want to say Chairman Wheeler looks like he has a light touch, right? He looks like he has gentle hands. <laughs> You know, he's a big guy, but he's gentle hands. I haven't really looked at his hands, but you get the idea. But then who knows what the, the commission is going to be like, you know, in, in a few years. How do you – is there any assurance that, that those gentle hands are being passed from one commission to the next? None whatsoever. Well, th there's never in any policy issue, right? I mean, so commissioners have to take the, the facts that, that they have, make the best policy decisions for the, t for the right time. And, you know, this wasn't something that was, was done sort of – Flippantly. Like, this was a very long proceeding. It was based, it was also joined with the previous proceeding um, leading up to the 2010 rules. There's an enormous record um, of support and um, for, for the commission to take drastic dis deviations one way or another going forward, um, you know, I, I think that would require a great deal of political capital, as was required in, in this proceeding. Uh, well, so I, I would take some issue with that. I mean, uh, it's often expressed, I think, as though uh, the the record and these, these alleged 4 million public comments that uh, allegedly were all in support of net neutrality and Title II, which is not remotely the case, um, sort of suggest that the record was completely one-sided. We even heard uh, Chairman Wheeler yesterday uh, say something like the public spoke and we listened, um, but but that but but the reality is that the record, uh, if you if you exclude the completely non-substantive vast majority of the four million comments, is filled with hundreds of thousands of pages of analysis on both sides of this issue, and uh, it, it is by no means the the case that you could look at the record and say very clearly this is the only thing for for us to do. In fact even yesterday, uh, 
the the commission has never been able to point to more than than a smattering of examples that may even rise to the level of net neutrality violation. They've made very clear these are meant to be kind of prophylactic rules that there is the potential for harm and we're going to try to stop it before it even happens. Well, on the basis of that record, I don't think you would have any trouble whatsoever uh, 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 imposing a completely different set of rules because if the record supports uh, uh, Title II, it just as much, if not more, of course, because I wrote several thousand of those pages, uh, uh, supports a different uh, approach. Though, though I, w- I want to be clear, I was talking both about the, the substantive record, but also the, the, the enormous political will that was, mm. I mean, we can disagree about where, where the, the comments, the four million comments sort of laid out, and I think there is a legitimate disagreement, partly because of the way that the FCC collects comments and submissions. Um, but the, there was a tremendous amount of political energy that regardless of how you feel about the merits of net neutrality, I think is sort of undeniable. And um, to recreate that one way or another, I think would be difficult. Now, that said, I, I think that there's... Do you think that's required, though? I mean, that's so, so, you know, for some of us, we think that the politicization of this is actually a problem and and that, that you know, the, the FCC is supposed to be an expert agency actually responding to the, the, the substantive comments and doing its own analysis and weighing those rather than responding to uh, the, a directive from the, the White House and, and sort of four million uh, and four million commenters. I totally agree that that the political momentum is very clearly in that direction. Um, and maybe as a practical matter, it could very well be the case that, that for any kind of change later down the road, you would also need some political momentum. It, let me as, as a legal matter. You yeah, wouldn't. let me interrupt. It, can the... Can, you said the White House, it was a director from the White House. Can the White, the President direct the FCC um, to do something? What do you mean can? I mean, the President can say what he wants, um, and, uh, and, and the FCC can respond however it wants. I mean, I, I think, I, I, you know, that, as you probably know, there's both a House and a Senate committee that are investigating whether there was any inappropriate influence by the, the White House on the process. And, and if you want, we can go into more details. But, but the, the, cr- the crux of the problem can't be, um, as unseemly as it may be, that the president said, I want this, and, you know, think that the FCC should do it. I mean, the FCC is an independent agency, and it shouldn't take – it shouldn't be forced to do what the president wants. And, and but can the, can, the president, can the president force the FCC to do something? Can it? No, I don't think oh, so. Okay. I mean, as, I mean, I mean, through through some kind of um, uh, you know pressure. I mean, he so thre- threaten to fire Wheeler or something like that. It would be illegal. Can't, he can't fire him. He could, he could no, I, remove I him from his yeah, chairmanship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, so, so let me. So it begs the question: like, where does the FCC get its authority? And that's the question, right? Where does the FCC get its authority to do this? And and we can go into uh, later. We're going to get into like what happens next, which right. I don't like. You know, let's save that for save that for that. But how, where does the FCC get their authority to do this stuff? From, from Congress, right? So it, it, it acts under uh, the le- legislation that's given to it. The 1934 Communications Act is supplemented by the 1996 Telecommunications Act to say nothing of the 1992 Cable Act and various other acts. But basically, if, if it doesn't appear in the Communications Act, they can't do it. And, that, and that's a big... And Sarah, would you say that um, the FCC... I, I really don't... I'm not an expert. Does the FCC feel like they, they had the grant of authority from Congress to do what they did? I mean, I think based on the, the chairman's remarks and the, the remarks from the supporting commissioners yesterday, I, I think they certainly believe that they did, and, and we believe that they do. I, and I think that that's illustrative of, of the really the real crux of the issue here. There's this regulatory ecosystem that exists whereby Congress um, passes laws, grants agencies authority, agencies take that authority and interpret it and, and pass regulations. 
Um, and they're given a high degree of deference to, to interpret ambiguous sections of the Act. Um, and we can disagree about whether or not this, this would meet the stat, like the, those, those, uh, judicial tests. Um, but th that's what this is about. I mean, the, the, the FCC is sort of addressing a similar, uh, the same question that they addressed in leading up to the Brand X case and the cable modem order. They're just answering okay. it a different way. So they're using their title. They feel like they have the authority granted by Congress to put this, put these things in Title II. And frankly, um, a lot of legal analysis said that you, we feel like you can, you can uh, put, reclassify. You've 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 declassified DSL and modem and other information services uh, as, uh, as information services. Um, but if you wanted to reclassify them as Title II, you know you can. Um, people say that's a really bad idea, but some people say that's a really good idea. Um, but they also had an, another option, right? For, they, they felt like they could have done it, taken another route. What? Which one was that? If they didn't do Title II, they felt they could have gotten a similar result doing another uh, grant of authority from Congress, which would have been through Section 706. Of 706. The and where did that come from? So this is a uh, like another uh, section of the Act that says um, the FCC is in charge of promoting the timely deployment of broadband, um, and if they believe that the broadband is not being deployed in a timely manner, they can take steps to address this. And so this is an interesting question. We we think that the the DC Circuit actually gave the FCC. Something of a road So 13 months ago when I said the D.C. Circuit struck down their first set of rules, um, they, uh, they came back later and said, well, you know, we feel like under Section 06, if you'd want to do it that way, you might have been able to. Is that what they said roughly? Yeah, they, they said they couldn't do exactly the same rules, but that they, they could they, – they were looking at ways in, within 706 that they could implement some types of protections that, that – Well, uh, what, what, so what, what the court said in, in the Verizon case was that there were sort of two important things, that – the FCC has the authority to regulate broadband under Section 706 of Title I. That's, that was huge, uh, actually. And frankly, from, from, you know, we can talk about this. And well. Chairman Wheeler said that that's, uh, he said the circuit court has given me an invitation and I plan to take it. That's right. Which it, he didn't, in fact, Well, initially, his, his initial set of proposed rules did, in fact, uh, uh, would have um, imposed the regulations under Section 706. What the court also said, though, was that uh, – Two out of the three sort of specific rules uh, under the 2010 Open Internet Order went to went beyond even that authority that it has under Section 706. But but Sarah's right. The court also did kind of give a, a roadmap. I think I think some people have suggested the court said you can and should or something like that do this under Title II. I don't think that's what the court said. But I do think that the court said um, if you come back with uh, with rules that that don't do these couple of things, and, and this is pr precisely what Chairman Wheeler did in his first set of proposed rules, then you, you won't have a problem under, or, or you you may not have a problem under Section 706. There were essentially two. Two options there. There was that, and then there was, you know, we, you've identified some, you've identified a problem, a, a 706 problem. You've implemented rules that uh, um, that we think would address that. Um, the, the problem here is that you applied those rules impermissibly to to common carriers. They, you're not allowed to apply common carriage like regulations to okay. non-common carriers. So, so the other option would be to just classify them yeah. as common carriers. We're getting a little legally here, but um, uh -huh. the idea is that Section 706 was passed by Congress. It was like it looks like it's the last standing piece that that's left of the 1996 Telecom Act, which was like a major overhaul of the Communications Act of 1934. And I thought it was long dead, that section, but Congress wrote it in kind of a vague way, and the D.C. Circuit came – they said, well, that looks like you could do it. So, so again, that's another grant of authority. Um, I, I, I'm running out of time. I want to I – um, 
we should get to interconnection at some point because that's huge. That's like, I guess the interconnection part is maybe triggered by, you know, the suggestion that you couldn't get your Netflix um, or that these huge, like, content companies that are pushing video down to, towards us and, like, who doesn't want to see Llama video of, of car chases or, or House of Cards, which no one here watches, I'm sure. Um, so that was that's, that's kind of the interconnection part where la last year I, I – I remember telling an audience here saying uh, the chairman said the interconnection has nothing to do with the, what we're thinking about, and that's totally different. Thirteen months later, the chairman said a lot of things that, that apparently after after the president spoke and four million uh, activists got involved, uh, uh, he changed his mind about. And well, one of them was. Indeed, I'm glad you think that there's four million activists. Well, it's a good in the point. United it's a good point. <laughs> it's of course not four million. I, I, I keep falling into the trap of the, uh, the activist trap. Um, uh, he did say uh, that interconnection is not a net neutrality issue, and that it wouldn't be regulated under this um, uh, uh, under this proposal. And 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 by the way, I don't want to get too legalistic here, but it also wasn't really addressed in the NPRM in the notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, which could be a problem for the interconnection rules because Legally, you do have to you know, yeah. raise that. But um, uh, but but you're correct. It, it is something that is that is different. But I think you're also correct that it is sort of seen by a lot of people as it looks like the same thing. If, after all, what the net neutrality rules are supposed to do is make sure I can get llama videos, well, they might as well also make sure that I can get House of Cards. I mean, I think that that's right. Now, they are actually, in, you know, for, in technical terms and legal terms, very different, but, but you know, you hit the nail on the head in terms of sort of the public perception of why they're the same issue. So um, I, I want to quickly now get to, you kind of talked about, like, businesses and um, what will happen to the burgeoning llama video industry and Netflix. And let's kind of get to the next part of this. Which was, what does this mean for businesses? What does this be, mean for the Internet ec economic ecosystem? What does it mean for consumers? And that's where I want to kind of bring in uh, Melanie and Anna Marie, um, uh, Anna Marie is a, a financial analyst for 30 years and, and kind of an economics professor. Not to say that um, uh, Jeff, who runs the International Center for Law and Economics, doesn't uh, have a good grasp of economics. Um, but just, just uh, Anna Marie, I want to get your uh, feedback on what this means. And you just need to press that button. Um, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I think one way to approach that is for me to actually get back a little bit to the ground you've already plowed. Um, yesterday, the FCC not only took on authority under Title II, but it also took on 706, which gives it very broad authority uh, over essentially the entire Internet ecosystem, and it also instituted a rule of general conduct, which also gives it enormous and, at the moment, entirely undefined per Chairman Wheeler's uh, press conference uh, powers to decide after the fact whether behavior was reasonable or not. So what I think that means uh, for anyone in the Internet ecosystem is, a, but particularly for the broadband, the ISPs, the broadband access providers, is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. If you're a wireless Internet service provider or a small cable company or a large cable company, but the problem is bigger for the small ones, uh, you have no idea at this point what rules you're acting under and what the FCC will decide after the fact might or might not have been reasonable rates for you to charge, reasonable ways to manage your network, reasonable ways to behave. That's one big problem. 
second big problem is that um, the way the order was done essentially bet net neutrality on Title II. What the D.C. Circuit told the, um, the FCC was you can come back under Section 706 with less absolute rules. If you insist on absolute rules, you, you, it does have to be common carriage, but you're going to have to prove that these are common carrier services. There are very good arguments in the docket on both sides. Um, there is a very good chance that they're going to get overturned on Title II, in which case all of the rules fall together. So that was a very large bet, which would not necessarily have been as big a bet under the 706 approach, but you want to remember 706 is still, in terms of an ISP who's acting or anyone in the Internet ecosystem, those rules are, have been now put into effect. So, or more to the point, the authority of the FCC to create whatever rules it thinks it needs to advance telecommunications, broadband, the Internet in the U.S. is now in effect. So the entire, I mean, these are just enormous changes, even for those phone companies that were operating uh, broadband under Title II. This is a totally different Title II now because we no longer have rate regulation. So what exactly are they going to be getting USF under is one question that came to me last night. Maybe the order will deal with that. Maybe it won't. I think edge providers... Edge providers uh, being like the Netflix and the, uh, the... The Netflix, the Google, Twitters, yeah. anyone who runs a platform that carries someone else's communications just to begin with uh, looks an awful lot like a telecom service now that the definition has been changed. So perhaps this commission isn't going to decide that uh, Facebook should operate under Title II, but they've opened the door if they are affirmed for the next commission to do that or for someone to take them to court and for the court to find that, oh, yeah, now that we have allowed that, this also looks like a telecom service. So the uncertainty, just let me yeah. finish one sec. The uncertainty extends throughout the ecosystem. Some of these folks obviously don't understand yet that it extends. Certainly a lot of smaller companies don't understand what's going to hit them, but they are going to be spending an awful lot of time with their lawyers trying to figure out how to configure services to try and evade Title II, um, which is not exactly the best way to, to innovate. So I guess the question, um, I, I probably should have phrased it as like, Fine. will the Internet be different um, <laughs> To, you know, tomorrow or sometime in the near future uh, when we see the rule than it was yesterday morning. Um, well, tomorrow it's not because the rules are not in effect yet, right? The rules right. go into effect after they go into the, the when they go into register, effect. which okay. could be, you know, months. Last time it took 10 months. But assuming a court does not at that point stay the rules, then the way companies operate is going to start being different because they are going to have to think about not what's the best price plan to get more customers if, you know, do I want unlimited or 
do I want to do a writing or do I want to be creative in some way? It's going to be what's going to keep me out of trouble at the FCC? And by the way, I don't have rules from the FCC to tell me what's going to get me into trouble. Okay. So, Particularly for a small company, that's a pretty quick road to bankruptcy. So let me give you, like, in the, in the near future, when we ever get the rules, um, let me – do we have any sense about what those rules might prohibit um, specifically? Do we any ideas? Because like I, I just I talked about how much I love my phone. It's um it's it's with the new carrier too, and I, and I get like free streaming of music, which I'm like really excited about. Um, also, Facebook has Internet.org. Facebook runs Internet.org. I don't know if you guys know that, um, but their goal is to get the two thirds of the world's population that doesn't have internet access internet access. So um, they're basically like paying uh, carriers in different countries that when people try to access internet.org, which is like for basic services and things that we can all agree are really helpful for developing countries, that it'll be it'll be free and and, and not count against the charges and things like that. So kind of cabin that off. And then Wikipedia does is doing kind of the same thing. It's kind of like creating this kind of specialized service. Um, do we have a sense of whether or not those things are going to be prohibited? They've raised a question. But uh, is it the order that well, – we haven't well, read we, the order, but yeah. from what they've said, but Chairman, that, I, that's in that category of general conduct right. that they will decide on sort of if people bring complaints – or, or if they ask for clarification, the FCC, I don't know if they, they made this as clear during the open meeting, but during the press conference afterwards, and particularly the, the um, conference with uh, FCC staff, um, there, there is an opportunity, and obviously we don't know all the details of it because we don't have the order, but an opportunity for a company to go to the FCC on an issue, say, something like a zero rating, the, the type of arrangement that you mentioned, if it's not covered by the explicit rules, and say, FCC, I'd like some guidance on how, like, what might happen here. And as I understand it, the FCC would, the, the bureau level would in, issue a non-binding assessment of, of that practice, and that could that would but provide no, some certainty. But non-binding is right. the key word, and, and, right? And there are no, and and not defined uh, in in the rules, and it, perhaps even more importantly. The, the real the real concern is I mean I mean you you raise exactly the right kind of you know you know edge cases where where they could easily fall under the general conduct rule and there have been intimations that there's concern with some of those things uh, for example in particular the the what's it called the music free the music freedom uh, uh, type of uh, prioritization deal right T-Mobile gives you uh, uh, I didn't say it was T-Mobile. Sorry, I'm just. I'm, uh, music, music freedom is a trademark of T-Mobile, uh, and uh, and and uh, if you listen to certain music streaming services, it doesn't count against your data limit, but for other services, it does. That that's a that's inherently prioritizing those. Uh, that are included over those that aren't, that could very well run foul of the rules. Now, it's possible that there will be some clarification to suggest they that they won't, but right now we don't know that. But again, the, but the really problematic thing is what about the the business models that we don't even know about yet? Right. In other words, and I think this is what Anna Maria is saying is that that for each of these, for for each of these, when it comes up, you now have to, you know, everyone talks about permissionless innovation. Well, this is now a rule that says if you want to innovate, you have to ask permission of the FCC, and that's that's only after you've come up with the innovation. There's also the risk that the fact that you would have to go through all of that and have no idea what the regulatory approach would be means that you don't even innovate in the first place. So let me um, – uh, so the corollary would be, um, you know, proponents uh, – um, um, again, I'm devil's advocate, uh, ignorance. Uh, these questions are emanating from ignorance um, and the devil. Um, you could also say in the, on the corollary, the argument for the proponents was that um, – 
you'd have the same kind of permission, uh, mother may I permission innovation um, with the carriers. You'd, when you wanted to develop a service, you'd have to go to the carriers and say, can I do this? Is that? It's never, it's happened. never happened in the past. Never so, happened. So. There's no reason to believe it ever would. Yeah. That's not, I mean, Netflix has been, has had fees demanded of it by the ISPs that, that smaller companies would. For something that, that ISPs have always charged for and that companies like Netflix have always paid for, which is the simple carriage of traffic. Not, not, they're, they're not saying, they're not extorting them. They're not saying, we, you know, unless you give us some monopoly rents, we're not going to, you know, let you reach your we customers. Have, we have research that, that directly contradicts that, that suggests that oh. for a period, a significant a period of, of time from 2013 to, to 2014, while disputes between Netflix and Comcast was happening, that customers, not just um, not just Netflix users, but customers of transit providers who were unwilling to, who were trying to negotiate that fee, received significant and sustained degradation of service beyond below even four megabits per second or whatever we used to def define as broadband. By Netflix's choice. I mean, the the the, the, the clear answer to that. It was clearly the clear response to that, and, and Anna Marie, you may know this better than I do, is that 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 any degradation that happened was because of Netflix's choice to make it happen precisely so that they could make these sorts of arguments. Regardless, no question regardless of who was at fault in those disputes or, or who was well, at fault, because this was a well, this it, was a matter of congestion. I just want to be clear about this. This was a matter of congestion at the interconnection ports. Right. This was not a, a a problem with any last mile. Uh, last mile congestion. This was happening. So in order for um, that congestion to be alleviated, both sides of that interconnecting point, both, you know, the, the last mile ISP and the transit provider, or, or in, if it's an edge provider interconnecting directly, ha both have to upgrade. And so the failure of one to do the upgrades would cause oh. the congestion. Well, let, let's circle back. Yeah, I just I want to get to, to Melanie, who's been sitting patient. Uh, a lot of people don't know that the National Association of Realtors, which is an organization representing realtors in every community of America, I bet there's like five people in this 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 room that have parents or brothers and sisters who are realtors, um, and and they've had a position on uh, the open internet for for a long time now. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, the eBay's and the Amazons and the Etsy's representing you know like people in the community trying to make sure they want to sell other things. But the Realtors is a really interesting case study. And let me, why did you come to this issue a long time ago and stick with it up until now? Right. So um, thank you. And it is true that we've had a position on network neutrality, open Internet, since about 2007. And that's really driven by technology and by the consumers that we serve um, who have really shifted the way that real estate, the real estate industry does business. Um, for those of you in the room who may have purchased a home, 15 years ago, you'd probably remember that the first thing you would do in that case is go visit a realtor who would have a big, fat paper book of, of listings. And you had to come through a realtor to figure out what home was on the market, what the marketplace was like. Today, that's completely changed. Um, today, consumers go online. They shop online 24 hours a day, look at homes um, at their leisure, and then go about uh, contacting a realtor. And in addition, um, real estate transactions are now increasingly done over the Internet or done over networks. And so you can have your realtor in California, and you can be concluding a transaction on the other side of the country. So uh, for this reason, um, our members have recognized as far back, I think even before 2007, that open Internet rules were important to them. Um, we've been supportive of those concepts ever since then. Um, we were supportive of what happened yesterday at the FCC, um, I think because recognizing we want to see 
bright line rules. Um, we want to see rules that can overcome um, the inevitable court challenge. And, but I will also say, I think we also recognize, and this may be segueing into where you want to go next, that this process is, isn't over. We recognize that there is a, a legislative process that's underway. Um, we have been in conversation with uh, Chairman Walden and Chairman Thune about their uh, draft, and we will continue to participate uh, in the legislative process. So specifically, you're saying that um, your member realtors um, felt that this is a position that you should take, and it's not because, is it because um, something that was happening to them in the marketplace with regard to consumers accessing their listings or getting access to certain services, or is it a deep concern about what might happen? Well, I think you mentioned some of the other kind of online realtors I think, or uh, online players. I think there's just a recognition that an open network is important to our industry to be able to continue to do business in the future. And the fact that, um, as I mentioned earlier, weak transact, uh, transactions online, video is becoming very important to the real estate industry. Uh, for most high-value homes now, you, when you go on whatever portal you're going to visit, you want to you want to view a, a video of the home that you're looking at. And moving forward, 3D photography and um, probably even more sort of bandwidth-consuming technologies are going to be things that we are going to move into. So again, just a recognition that uh, open networks are important to us. Um, we want to continue to be able to have um, unhindered access. And okay. So let me, um, with the, with, let's just go to qu um, some questions, um, if anybody has any about, uh, for the panel, about what this means and, and everything like that, and then we'll, um, we'll see what we get. We want to get to where does this go from here? What does Congress do? What is uh, what's the litigation outlook look, look, look like? But let's first get some questions, and maybe there are some of those. Um, right here, ma'am. And, and if you if we can like kind of narrow down the question, it's the, your constituents want to get access to these uh, services, and the concern is that they might not be able to if there weren't net neutrality. Or if the internet is up to the highest bidder, it's a lot of okay. I would say that there are two, two important responses. One that is that, again, there's never been any indication that those sorts of services or any sorts of services have been blocked uh, uh, in the entire history of the Internet. Um, and secondly, uh, even under, even after the court's decision in Verizon, uh, uh, even under Section 706, a, a basic anti-blocking provision would have been perfectly acceptable. In fact, was essentially upheld, but, but barely. I mean, with some tweaks under the the opinion. So, if for the specific concern that you're asking about, the easy solution is. 
a, a simple, non-invasive, no-blocking no rule. I'm not saying I recommend this, but but if you need, if you wanted to do this, it would be a simple no-blocking rule under Section 706, and Title II would be completely irrelevant to all of that. Though, though there are certain, I, I think it's important to recognize that there is ways that that content can get swept up into if there are capacity constraints on the network, and those constraints can happen either because the, the quote-unquote fast lane that we've talked about in other panels uh, takes up too much of the existing capacity and relegates the, these other, other types of content to the slower lane or just there, there's, um, if, if, that net, if that side of the network or portion of the network is congested, then that affects everything in that, in the, in that portion of the network. And so it, it's so, so the example you're talking about is like, let's say that one of your constituents is trying to, you know, pay their parking tickets before their car gets impounded, which will make them lose their job. And then the person next to them is like downloading that, you know, the whole season of House of Cards and they can't actually pay that and they get their car impounded, lose their job. And that's kind of the host of horrible. Yeah, but, so well, but it doesn't happen that way. It, it, sorry, go ahead. But that was, it that's the scenario that you're talking about, right? Yeah. I think clearly it would be very helpful to have legislation that was directed at the issues we really need to address as opposed to trying to shoehorn the goals that we all share of non-blocking, making sure everyone has access uh, into a huge regulatory regime that was designed for a totally different world. Right. So um, I very so, much hope. Well so somehow the year is over, we will in fact see legislation. Somehow the two people at the end of the table are now in support of legislation. Um, uh, you had a no blocking rule, and you, but no, let's I get clearly that that would be ideal, because aside from anything else, as I said, you know, when I started, yesterday's rules could be overturned, and then there's nothing, which you know Jeff might like, but. Um, <laughs> It would be good to get something that's tailored to the actual problem. Okay, let's uh, another question, ma'am. Can I take first quick sure. stab? Mm -hmm. So, so um, we've worked really closely with an, with um, Engine Advocacy, which is an organization that represents startups, and th they've um, spent a lot of time. Their members have spent a lot of time in this record talking about the need for clear rules from the FCC in order to to preserve their certainty and and their business models that they rely on. And the venture capitalists that, that in that community have have echoed those concerns and and said that you know we need 
we need clarity and um, we need we need protections in place to ensure that even the smallest companies operating out of someone's garage have the opportunity to thrive. And um, they, sorry, I had actually a, a great quote from um, them, a, a vibrant, and, and all of these startups, Engine Advocacy has been a strong supporter of the FCC's approach and issued a, a very positive statement yesterday. But as they say quite well, a vibrant internet economy depends on an open playing field in which small, innovative entrepreneurs can compete with incumbents on the quality of their services, not on the size of their checkbook or their roster of lobbyists. And so I think that, you know, the FCC's process may not be perfect, and we we don't even we still have to see the the, the order itself. But I think it's a very strong step in towards affording the, those types of protections that that small companies have sought. And I guess my view is that a lot of those companies are about to find themselves hiring armies of lawyers uh, to try and understand this order, which is anything but going to provide anything but clarity, even before you look at the fact that it's going to be litigated over the next decade probably, and we will have no idea from one year to the next what the rules are because we won't know what different courts are going to do. For example, all of the forbearance a lot of that is going to be litigated, and if the order is upheld, there's a very good chance that, in fact, the light touch is not going to be upheld. So, so I, cl clarity would be great, but that's not what we. But you, and you, we and got. you can have you know it's it's actually a sort of age old question about appropriate regulation. You, you can have very clear rules, right? For, for you know, we could. You know, ban all content on the internet, it would be very clear, right? You wouldn't have any question there. Uh, but, but obviously that would be dramatically over-inclusive. The kind of rules that I think would be much better here um, uh, would be rules that allowed, that, that imposed some sort of a, um, an effects-based requirement, something that said uh, you, you can't do these awful things on the internet provided they actually have anti-competitive, demonstrable anti-competitive effects or foreclose someone's access to the market as a business matter. Now, that does still mean that, you, you know, in order to adjudicate that, there's some cost to it, right? But, but the rule is actually still pretty clear, and it doesn't actually ban any potentially good behavior up front. And th that's where I'd rather see the trade-off, but I will acknowledge that there's still a trade-off there, that even then, there's going to be some right. li litigation. Let me get to a few more, uh, a few more questions. Uh, sir? Uh, so I want to tie this back to the first order. Um, if you can identify yourself, that'd be great. You're talking about the Muni broadband order when you refer to the first order? Yeah. I, uh, 
I mean, so there's a couple of things. I mean, one is um, it, it is correct and, and increasingly the case that that uh, DSL and now VDSL provides uh, uh, you know, remarkably fast, even even at the the heightened uh, standard of 25 megabits a second uh, service. To the extent that that now in 90 94% of America has at least a choice of at least or sorry not at 25 but at 10 megabits a second a choice of at least two providers and i think 80% have a choice of three and we i know we're very fond of saying that two is really it's only one away from one and one is monopoly and so two must be kind of like monopoly but it's not that actually is very real competition and in many markets is sufficient to ensure competition but I, but the, the, the really the answer to your, to your question is the things that do impede uh, competition the most are a actually, I believe, uh, uh, local regulations, franchise regulations that impose onerous requirements for others to enter into markets um, uh, that uh, make it difficult for broadband providers that aren't, aren't are also common carriers to get attachments to government-owned poles, things like this. And if you, if you, what you really wanted to do was ensure that there was more facilities-based competition, more competition between uh, ISPs. You would want to. That's where you would target. You would say, "Let's let's do something about uh, these local the rules that impede other companies from coming in to compete." I think the proponent competition conversation is a really complicated one for another time. But um, sorry, if you want to just just weigh in on that last, last I mean, question. I mean, we've su we've supported um, the the communities in Chattanooga and, and Lafayette. We've worked very closely with municipal um, network operators and um, and have written extensively on, on the value that municipal networks can play. Um, I think any effort that, that, the, that, can, that we can do in order to create more opportunities for communities to determine for themselves what type of networks work best, or at least to have the option to do so, um, is, is a step in the right direction. I, we, I think that the, the question about like how many providers are there in a given area, that's a really complicated one to answer. And I, I, I think that Jeff might have been counting some mobile providers in there. I mean, that's another question. Oh, that, it's even more when you count mobile. Um, <laughs> but but we, we do see, see local networks in, in various iterations as, as good op options for communities, for certain communities that want them. And can I go to another question right, right here, ma'am? I think you're looking at me, so I just was trying to. That it's really about uh, the congestion at the interconnection point and getting that solved. So, considering Netflix admitted, does that mean that you would support uh, regulation on the sender side as well? No, we're very much opposed to sender side um, types of, of, of legal theories. Um, and, you know, I, Without getting into the, the specifics of the dispute itself, the result of the degradation of service that happened because one or both sides failed to upgrade their interconnection ports meant that it was not just Netflix's service that was being degraded, but the service of all different types of traffic that was carried over the interconnecting partner, uh, parties' networks. One 
So we, we think that strong open Internet protections on the last mile of the network will actually prevent those types of disputes from occurring because they take away the incentives for, for, for those negotiations to happen. Um, and so and, – and also I, my, OTI has long been a proponent of the, the separation of the layers of the network. Like the, the, there's a, the architectural – the delivery of content over the network and there's the applications that, that operate over it. Um, we have always argued that the, the rules in place should, should apply to the delivery, the, this narrow slice of last mile delivery of content itself, and we think that the, that's what this, this order does. Well, um, I, I want to point out, um, before I ask one last really quick question of the panel, I really want to point out that on your chairs, um, this is, our, again, our kickoff for the, uh, the briefing ser- season. Um, we don't always start off with net neutrality, but it happened the last two years in a row. So, um, But on your chairs, um, if you're a member of Con- if you're a representative member of Congress, uh, there is a sheet that says you can join the Congressional Internet Caucus, and it lays out the goals for the caucus, which are basically like apple pie, uh, Chevrolet, llamas, and the internet, right? Even the, llamas aren't really a... I'm glad mar- you didn't say blue dresses. <laughs> blue dresses. Um, and so the, the staff, the, the congressional staff you contact are listed down below, and you can contact any one of them. They may be here later for the reception, so you can ask them. And the other one is if you're in the private sector, whether you're an NGO, whether you're an academic, whether you're a company, or whether you're a trade association, whatever, um, the Internet Caucus, you can join the Congressional Internet Caucus and help us kind of plan these briefings, and there's a ton of them. So we could really use your help. Um, the last question, and then what we'll do uh, is open the bar for drinks, but let me ask this really question, because we didn't get to so much, and I'm so sorry. Um, I would ask the panelists, like, um, if, if you were to say to congressional staff and, and members, like, when they go home uh, for the April recess, you know, what do they say to their constituents about what's going to happen? What, is, this a, is this done? Is this, you know, going to be a mess? Is everything going to be okay? It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess for a long time. Uh, it, it's going to be a mess, and watch out for higher taxes and fees from uh, uh, localities and states. They're coming. Uh, and uh, and you won't see the lost innovation. You never do, but it'll be there. I'm happy to refute the, the point that Jeff so conveniently raised on the very last question about new taxes sure. over drinks. Um, but rest assured that the, the Congress has actually done an effective job at protecting against taxes online Um so what do we see in the next? I, you know, I we have to still first we have to see the order, and we we need some time to digest that. But I'm feeling optimistic. This is a a path that that um, we have argued for um, for many years. That we we've always believed that Title II afforded the Commission the soundest legal authority to implement strong net neutrality rules. And I think that the Commission has been very thoughtful throughout this process and taken in a lot of input from a variety of stakeholders and really worked to fine tune this order to be a, a something very very strong and good. So. I'm, I'm in the optimistic camp. And I would just say, I, I, did, I don't think this process is over. No, I think we've right. got lawsuits, we've got legislation pending, and, and sort of where we come down is we are participating in, in every venue, and at the end of the day we want to see strong, um, enforceable rules that help our members uh, do their business online. Right. So, um, you know, whether you 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 feel like you lost in this FCC decision, or you you know, and then you need to drown your sorrows and get some car- liquid courage to fight another day, or that you want to celebrate because you won, regardless, um, welcome all of us to um, cocktails as soon as the bartender comes in, uh, just to celebrate the kickoff of this briefing series. And thank you so much for showing up, and thank the panel. Appreciate it. Thank you.